Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Joshua. It's an honor to come with you before the Word of God, the Word that cuts to the quick, that discerns the intentions of the heart, that convicts us, that encourages us. And my prayer is that as we come to God's Word today, we would together humble ourselves and not come at God's Word from above with authority over it, but that we would sit under it and be filled with the truth that God pours into us by His Spirit. So let's pray that He would help us do that now. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We pray that we would hear it and do it. That Your Spirit would be with us as we hear it read. And that we would be changed. As your word goes forth, would it go forth in power by your spirit who's with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage this morning is Joshua chapter 8, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 35. And uh, before we get into reading it, I want to clarify, we're going to read it in three parts. It's a lot to read at one time, and so what we're going to do is read part one and and dive in, and then read part two, and dive in, and read part three, and dive in. Before we jump in here to specifically reading part one, I want you to actually open the bulletin with me for a minute, and thumb through the bulletin with me for just a minute. On page one in the bulletin, in the first explanatory sidebar, you notice we have those that, that bar that with the gray words that it kind of explains what's going on in the service we're reminded in that first sidebar that this order of worship or what we call our liturgy is designed to tell us the gospel every week. And now you might say, okay, I've been a believer a long time. I don't really need the gospel anymore. Actually, you do. That's how we continue to grow as believers as we root ourselves deeper and deeper in this gospel. No one outgrows the gospel. We need to hear it and live it as we grow and mature until our dying breaths, we need the gospel. And in this worship service, we hear and we are changed by the gospel. And the very first thing that happens in the service after we've prepared, look down and you see God calls his people to worship and you see that call to worship. And in the explanation there, it says God initiates the relationship with his people and our response is to love him with all our capacities. We hear him and we respond. He calls and we respond. And so our response is to sing and we sing And then he calls again, calling us to confess our sins, and we do it. And then we hear him speak the forgiveness of sins, and we respond by standing up in that forgiveness, by taking God at his word, by hearing his word, and by doing it, and by giving praise, and by giving of our financial gifts, and by giving of the deepest attachments of the person and of the soul. That's how we continue to respond as we go through this worship that God initiates. And we hear him speak in the reading of his word, and then we respond. We hear and we do. We hear and we do. We hear and we do. Do you see the pattern? That's the pattern of the service, and that's the pattern of our interaction with God's word. We hear and we do. God speaks and we respond. And so we're coming right now to this part of the service where we're going to hear God's word, and I pray that we would hear it and then be those who go and do it. And part of our response is what comes next. We come to the Lord's Supper where this this is a covenant renewal ceremony. 
which is very much like what the Israelites are doing here in Joshua 8. They're hearing God's word and they're obeying it and they're doing it and their covenant renewal is a part of that obedience. Thomas Watson, the famous Puritan, says it this way, Obedience is an excellent way of commenting on the Bible. How do you make comments about what you believe about, about, about the Bible? How do you show people what this says? Obey. It speaks volumes. It speaks volumes of your understanding of Scripture. So our, our main point today, as we see in Joshua 8, is that God is calling us to be hearers and doers. Do not merely listen to God's Word and so deceive yourselves, as James says. Do what it says. And that's our challenge today as we come to Joshua chapter 8. We're going to look at part one, the divine forbearance of God. Divine forbearance, second of all, obedience in battle, and third, obedience to the covenant. Divine forbearance, obedience in battle, and obedience to the covenant. Let's look at divine, divine forbearance. You have to remember as we come to this chapter, Israel has just been grievously disobedient to the point that God punished Achan and his whole clan for their sin, disobeying God. God had spoken clearly, do not take any of the things that are devoted to destruction, yet they took them. They disobeyed. They heard and they were not doers of the word, and they received the punishment due for that. Israel then received the punishment or judgment for that sin by losing the battle at Ai. And they come yet again today to another battle at Ai. And we see in this battle God's divine forbearance. Hear God's word from Joshua chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land, and you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them and they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they're fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See? I have commanded you. In these verses, God is acting in undeserved, gracious covenant relationship to his people. He's given them his word, his clear commands, despite their sin. Although God had previously given his word that they disobeyed here, he actually starts off in these first eight verses with encouragement, with encouragement and confidence. God says in verse, or, uh, verse one says, and the Lord said, to Joshua. This is very different than the last time they went up to, against Ai. Last time the Lord had not spoken and given instructions. They went up of their own worldly wisdom. We'll just take a few thousand. They're small people. We'll be fine. This is a much better start than the last attack. 
because Israel has no hope without God. The smartest military advisors cannot stand against God's forces. But here Israel has all authority on their side while God is with them because the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. And God's encouragement continues. He says, do not fear and do not be dismayed. This sounds a whole lot like God's charge to Joshua at the beginning. A charge to a faithful one, a charge that has blessings attached to it. He is with them and his word is not to depart from them. And then he says, see, I have given into your hand the king of Ai. This is victory guaranteed. The Lord is telling them, here's how you're going to win this battle. You lost last time out of punishment for your sins, but he is being so divinely forbearing and patient and gracious to them. He says, I'm going to give you the victory this time. He says, I'm going to give the king of Ai into your hand as you did to Jericho and its king. So this battle is going to be far more like Jericho than it was like the rebellion of Achan and and the defeat at Ai. In fact, it's almost like chapter 7 doesn't exist in the book. Like God has wiped away their sin. God's giving them the second chance to obey his command and to devote to destruction according to his command all the things that are to be banned for destruction for God's glory. And he's telling them that they can claim the inheritance of that land according to his promise. He's continuing to give them the blessings of covenant obedience. And he tells them to use a certain tactic. Go up like last time, right? When you were defeated, remember your tactics to come against I. You came up against them and they made you flee. That you turned your back and they slaughtered you. 36 of them were killed in the descent of the stone quarry. God says, reenact it. Go up again and pretend to flee. God is taking the last time's defeat and he's using it as a tactic for victory. And what it does is it shows that although man's wisdom leads to defeat, with God's blessing, no one can turn his hand away. And when God is for you, who can be against you? No one. There's no force in this world, not even a force within Satan himself or within you or within the forces of darkness around us that can turn away God's mighty hand. The smallest of strengths against the mightiest of powers will prevail with the Lord on its side. So not only does God give them a clean slate, as if the sin of Achan had been non-existent because God's wrath was satisfied for that sin of Achan, but he's also now giving them blessings covenant blessing as if they had kept the law. This time, he's also showing that by letting them keep some of the plunder. Last time at Jericho, he said, keep nothing. This time he says, you can keep the livestock. You can keep the livestock and and the plunder. Only its spoil, verse 2, only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. So I guess that raises the question, why can they take some of the devoted things this time? Whereas last time, all of it was supposed to be devoted to destruction. Well, uh, there are a few theories, according to um, some of these biblical scholars. One of them says that Jericho was a complete ban, a complete devotion to destruction. And that was to symbolize that everything that was to follow, uh, that the whole land was completely devoted to the Lord. It was a bit of like a title track for an album. tells you, here's what's coming. Complete ban. This is all the Lord's. And so now God having established that truth, can return to Israel a portion of the plunder. 
Another theory is that unlike Achan, who failed the test at Jericho, these came up faithfully to obey. Those who take I did so with complete obedience, and therefore there was rewarded for that. But either way you understand it, what we see is that all these things that Israel is coming in to conquer and to take, all of them belong to God. And he can do with them as he likes, and this time he's choosing to give to Israel as a means of his provision. Because after all, they are without manna. And God knows that they need provision. And so God provides for them here as he knows that they have need. As we reflect on what Achan did in disobeying the ban, we look at how God is now seeking to provide and to bless for his people in this conquest. We realize, as another pastor put it, how needless Achan's covetousness was. How needless Achan's covetousness was. He decided he was going to take matters into his own hands and take what he thought he needed, not trusting the Lord to provide. Because here the Lord does provide. And if Achan had just obeyed, he would have seen the Lord provide with plunder, with far more than he could have imagined. Contentment, this pastor says. Contentment with God's goodness is our antidote for apostasy. We must continue to grow in contentment for what God has given us. Now he's promised to bless us and to take him at his word when he says, I will take care of you. He does give us this day our daily bread. So God's commands, God commands them to do according to the word of the Lord. Look in verse 8. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. It sounds very much like his command to Joshua at the very beginning. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. And what was the foundation of that strength and courage? It's to heed God's word, to obey, to not turn to the right or to the left, because the Lord was with him. So Israel gets another chance to do that, to hear his word and to obey it here in this passage. But we have to ask, how can God continue to give blessing to such a sinful people? Is he like the the teacher in high school who plays favorites and punishes some of those kids immediately if they come in out of dress code, but the others, he just kind of laughs it off and lets them slide. Is that what God's doing here? After all, God had said to Israel in Deuteronomy 9 that he's giving them the land not because they are faithful to the covenant or especially righteous. Instead, he's giving them the land because of how wicked the people of the land are. And we get a glimpse earlier of what's going on in the wickedness of this of these people in this land leviticus 18 tells us a few things and these are gruesome first they were sleeping with their neighbor's wives second they were offering their children in sacrifice to molech third the men were sleeping with men as if with a woman and fourth they were guilty of bestiality Because of this, God says that the land is vomiting out its inhabitants. And so Israel then enters to make this a land of righteousness and obedience to God. But is Israel the perfect, pure, righteous people who deserve to purify the land instead? No, they're stubborn. God even said, I'm not giving it to you because you're righteous. The righteousness of Israel is an alien righteousness. And I'm not talking about outer space. This is an alien righteousness that comes from somewhere outside of them. 
They get to come in standing upon the credit of somebody else. They have access to some foreign merit in the mix because we see it belongs to Israel and we're going to see in verses 33 and 35, it also belongs to Gentiles who are with them. Look at verse 33. And all Israel, who's all Israel? Sojourner as well as native born. Well, you know, some who have been included, Rahab's been included in this and her clan. And by implication, what we'll, we'll see here at the end, Maybe some from Shechem have also been included, and maybe others along the way have bowed the knee faithfully to Yahweh, and now they are the sojourners with Israel who are welcomed into this place of blessing. And in verse 35, it reiterates, it's for the sojourners also who lived among them. And so Israel has two things at work right now that are giving them the victory over I. And this time, neither one is the result of their own goodness. First of all, it's God's patience, his divine forbearance that he would overlook their sin and continue to bless them. And second, it's the righteousness of another. Another. Someone outside them that is earning them covenant blessings. So remember, patience and foreign righteousness. We're going to come back to this concept as we get to the end of the chapter. Because this is God's character, even for us today, even sinners like us who have heard his word and disobeyed like you and I did this week. He patiently allows us to come back into his presence. He patiently allows us to hear his word again and to respond in faith and obedience. So as we wrap up here, the section on divine forbearance, I leave you with this question. Why is God patient with stubborn Israel? Why do they get a second chance? Why do they get alien righteousness? Why is God being forbearing with them. Why do they get another chance to be hearers and doers? Well, we will come to that. The second part here is obedience in battle. Really, the question is, if God's giving them another chance, are they going to obey this time? Are they going to obey? Well, the title gives it away. Obedience in battle here in part two. Let's read verses 9 through 29 in Joshua 8. So Joshua sent them out and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven. 
and they had no power to flee this way or that for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai, they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. That sends the reading of this portion of God's word. In the first eight verses, we saw Joshua had commanded exactly what God commanded. And here in these verses, we see that Joshua acted perfectly in line with God's commands. You can see how specifically the words are chosen and repeated to show God commanded ABC, Joshua did ABC. God commanded XYZ, Joshua and Israel did XYZ. God gives them the victory. The strategy, the game plan, he's using their prior defeat as a means of victory. This is all God's doing. And this time he has called Israel to participate in battle, so they do. Yet it is God who, according to the first eight verses that we looked at, has done and has given all the details. And so what we read in this second part is simply the outworking of God's plan down to the details. They have heard the victory proclaimed by God, and now they do it. They've heard God's word, and now they do it. And Israel obeys with diligence. I want to highlight a few of these things. Verse 9 starts off, And so Joshua sent them out. So Joshua sent them out, as God commanded. Verse 9, And they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai, as God commanded. Verse 10, Joshua arose early in the morning. You remember that phrase, to arise early in the morning, shows diligent obedience. And in verses 10 and 11, Joshua and the people went up, just as God commanded. Then in verse 18, God speaks again. The Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that's in your hand toward I. And immediately we read, and Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. This repetition of this detailed obedience as God commanded. And you'll notice also this is a parallel with Moses. God commanded him to raise his staff at the Red Sea. Nearly identical language. And both of these are displays of God's power at work, bringing salvation for his people And the uplifted hand here in obedience, holding the javelin until the battle is won, indicates the faith that looks heavenward for the battle to be won. And in verse 26, we see that Joshua continued obeying without wavering, with his hand outstretched until the very end, until everything was devoted to destruction, until the obedience was complete. His hand up didn't signify his strength, but it signified their dependence upon God's strength that was at work. And a few more things starting in verse 19, that show us how obedient the people were here in battle. It says, The men in ambush rose quickly 
And it, it uses the phrase, as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. These are terms of haste. They are quick to obey. But they also did wait until Joshua had raised his hand, stretched out his hand, because that outstretched hand, again, signified God's promise in verse 18 that he will give the city into their hand. And if they went before the hand was outstretched, then they would be going on their power, not God's plan. And so they hurried in verse 19. They hurried to set the city on fire. And verse 28, Joshua burned eye and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. They, they obeyed. They did what was written. And in verse 24, Israel finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai. And in verse 29, as they were commanded, he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. You may know, as we heard in our assurance of pardon this morning, that to be hung on a tree shows that you are cursed by God. And so this man, the king of Ai, king of this wicked city, had been cursed by God and so was signified by his being hung on a tree. Notice how complete obedience Israel's obedience was this time. There's no partial obedience followed by rationalizing the rest away. We're so good at following the, the commands of God to a point where it's convenient or looks good or is pretty easy. The parts that we like to obey and then we just explain away the rest of it that we don't feel like we need to obey. Look at the completeness here. Verse 22, none survived or escaped. Verse 24, all the inhabitants were killed. Verse 24, all of them to the very last fell by the edge of the sword. Verse 24, all Israel participated Verse 25, all 20, or excuse me, 12,000 people. Much of this is obedience to verse 2. And you shall do to I and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as a plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. They did this. They followed. They obeyed the commands. They were given another chance. And they've obeyed. This permanent heap of ruins, though, that we see described, this permanent heap of ruins of I and of the king actually goes further back than verse 2. It goes back to Deuteronomy 13. Because in Deuteronomy 13, is the only other place we see that phrase, a permanent heap of ruins. Verse 8 says, You shall do according to the word of the Lord. Speaking of setting eye on fire. And this is referring directly to Deuteronomy 13, which says, Gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. Can't imagine that's a convenient command to follow. Yet they took God's word, they heard it, and they did it. They're going back to the book of the law of Moses. They're going back with a renewed eagerness to walk faithfully to this covenant God who has been with them as since even before they left Egypt. They're living out, out of that covenant relationship that God has established with them. And they're living out the commands and the statutes that he's given them to live in obedience and to live in blessing. This time they've heard and they have done with detailed obedience and battle what God told them to do. We saw God's divine forbearance. We see their obedience in battle. So I remind you of our question at hand. Why do they get a second chance at obedience? Why is the victory given to them? Why does Joshua get a chance to hold up the javelin in his arm and to see God fight for them? Why does the curse fall on the king of Ai? 
We'll see it here as we look at their obedience to the covenant in verses 30 through 35. Hear God's word as we read from verses 30 through 35. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered it on burnt offerings, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. And the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. What we see in this is that Israel gets to hear God's written word once again, read as it was given to Moses, and they get to do it. God's word does not have an expiration date, a best by date. They've obeyed his battle instructions in the current moment. And now they get to go and hear his old ancient word that is still powerful and good. And so here we immediately transport, starting in verse 30, immediately. The battle is done in verse 29, and then we transport immediately 20 miles north to this area of Shechem. And Joshua's building an altar. These verses are about covenant renewal. The battle that just occurred where Israel defeated I. That's the physical manifestation of a deeper, more real, and more important reality that Israel is bowing once again to God and renewing their commitment to this relationship with Yahweh. This covenant renewal is deeper and more important and more foundational than the battle itself. And the importance of going up here to Shechem is important. God has made promises here in Shechem, and God has been faithful to his promises here in Shechem, and he is once again in these verses faithful to his promises in Shechem. Shechem is where God promised to Abraham that his descendants would come back. And it describes in Genesis 12, 8, Abraham's location as with Bethel on the west and I on the east, just like Joshua 8, 9. But here... But Shechem is where Abraham's descendants also returned. Specifically, Jacob returned with his people, and Jacob also built an altar there. The Israelite people would hear the term Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and they would know these are the two mountains on either side of Shechem that is squeezed right down there in the bottom. And these, these two mountains will, by our standards, tall hills. These two tall hills created a bit of a natural amphitheater. And so Moses had commanded them in Deuteronomy 27, when you go into the land, half of you stand on the bottom of Mount Gerizim, half of you stand on the bottom of Mount Ebal and read the blessings and the curses of the law to each other. Stand there in this place of promise and claim God's covenant blessings. But also, 
by reading the blessings and the curses, they're reminding themselves of the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. They've returned to that very land that God promised to Abraham's offspring to give. And here, what does Joshua do? He builds an altar, just as Abraham had done, just as Jacob had done in Shechem. So now Joshua builds an altar specifically of uncut stones, which is exactly what Moses commanded in Deuteronomy 27. They've returned to the place of promise and they renew their commitment to the covenant by a handful of things. Look at verse 31. This altar of uncut stones, specifically what Deuteronomy 27 verse 6 commands. They offer burnt offerings and peace offerings in verse 31. And this is giving to God what is God's from a heart of faith as they had not done the first time they went up to Ai. Joshua is writing on the stones a copy of the law of Moses in verse 32, and that is specifically what was commanded in Deuteronomy 27, verse 3. And half of the tribe stood on Mount Ebal, half on Mount Gerizim in verse 33, as they were commanded in Deuteronomy 27, verses 12 and 13. They read the blessings and the curses in verse 34, according to Deuteronomy 27, verses 12 and 13. And by so doing, they acknowledge again for themselves the blessings if they obey, and the curses if they disobey. And to summarize it, to show the completeness, the reason I'm giving you all these references is to show you this is a very specific obedience to God's ancient word. And verse 35 summarizes it this way. It says, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel. And not just the men but to everyone, the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. This is a complete return to following God. They've heard it, and they are promising to be doers of it. This is wholehearted dedication, a renewal of faith and a dedication for all of them, and they're teaching their children. And they come saying, we will no longer give God half of our heart. As he has been faithful to us to bring us back to this place according to his promise and his word, so we will obey and we will long to obey. Not only has God been abundantly gracious to them, to Israel, by letting them proceed back to I and to win that victory without the sin of Achan held against them, but also he's given them the victory. And now not only has he given them the victory, but he's allowing them to draw near to him under those same terms of the covenant promises and blessings and to receive the blessings of it. And as they recite these covenant blessings and curses, God renews with them the promise that if they keep it, he will bless them. God is giving them grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. If you take nothing else today, I want you to see that verses 30 through 35 show us, they anticipate for us an Israel that obeys like this, yet without a past of sin. An Israel that's perfect. An Israel that does everything commanded in the covenant and does it perfectly and receives the blessings for it. You can say, well, that, that doesn't describe Israel ever. And you're right. Not if we're speaking of humans. Not if we're speaking even of us as the church, the new Israel. We have not ever been perfect. How is there ever going to be this perfect Israel that keeps it all perfectly with no record of sin? Let me tell you what I think God, God's word wants us to hear today that we might do it. It's this. The obedience of Israel in battle and in covenant renewal, although they are imperfect, it anticipates the perfect and sufficient obedience of another. 
The curse of the king of Ai hanging on a tree anticipates the sacrifice of another. The king of the Jews who became a curse for us in his body on the tree. The blessing of victory and abundance in the land anticipates the spiritual blessings in another in his new Jerusalem. The covenant renewal, this restored relationship with God, anticipates the work of complete restoration by another who is to come. The sacrifice of peace offerings, though it's the blood of animals, it anticipates the sacrifice of another, the spotless lamb of God whose blood actually takes away the sins of the world once and for all. Israel's return to the covenant and their return to obedience of hearing and doing the word earnestly. It's a call for all believers to return to God on the basis of his covenant faithfulness. You and I are called by this passage to return to God. To turn from our sin and to turn to obedience. Because when God made that covenant with Abraham, I mean, you may remember from Huckleberry Finn, that oath you make, the blood oath, you cut your blood and you write your promise in blood. I, will, I swear I will not tell or I'll fall dead. One person writes it in his blood, another person writes it in his blood. Both parties keep the commands, the, the oath. When God made this covenant with Abraham, these animals were cut and one person passes through and says, I will keep this or else I'll be cut. And then another person passes through and says, I'll keep this covenant or I'll be cut. Yet Abraham never walked through the animals. God walked through twice. Once for himself and once for Israel. He walked through twice as the smoking fire pot and as the torch, the flaming torch, as we see in Genesis. God is saying, I'm going to do my part or might I be cut. And I'm going to do your part or else you will be cut. When God passed through that covenant-cutting ceremony with Abraham, he's promising his responsibility and man's responsibility, and he kept it. When did God keep Israel's part? When did God keep the covenant for Israel? It was when the perfect son of David came. He became man. He was born as Jesus of Nazareth in a manger. And he kept the covenant perfectly. And yet he died the death of a covenant breaker. He bore all the punishments of sin. So who gets the benefits of his covenant keeping? All the benefits that he earned? We do. Whoever looks to him in faith, Israel, renewing this covenant in Joshua 8, gets the benefits of Jesus, the covenant keeper. Anyone who looks to him in faith. Whoever acknowledges their need for him and receives his grace and rests upon him. Romans 3 tells us exactly what we see going on here. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. His blood paid for the sins of another to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Israel is living God's divine forbearance in this passage. And it was to show, Romans 3 tells us, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be, the, be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Was God just to overlook their sins and his divine forbearance? Yes, because he is the justifier of their sins, of them before God with Jesus on the cross, the cursed one who took our curse. 
And He's currently for Israel in our passage as they go to battle before I and as they renew the covenant. He is passing over their sins, not to forget them. He's not unjust, but that so He might justify them in Jesus on the cross. And they get it. And they come to God as the God of justice, and they ask for his justification, and they claim his promised blessings by drawing near to him again in faith. Some of us rested upon Jesus at one time. If you've ever professed your faith, you have rested upon Jesus, and yet we seem so often to drift. Or as they said back home, you're a backslider. Your closeness to God maybe has dulled. Maybe your awareness of His grace for you has weakened. Maybe your comforts from Him have worn off. Sure, you can still affirm the same doctrines, even the ones that we recite here at church every week, and you still agree with everything I say here on Sunday mornings and on Sunday evenings, but you need a covenant renewal. Either your heart has faded, excuse me, either your hearing has faded and your heart is no longer in it when you hear God's Word, Maybe God's words sound to you like Charlie Brown's teacher. Or maybe our doing has become lazy and we deserve the punishment of Achan. A scholar put it this way, for the Christian, the covenant renewal here in Joshua 8 recalls the need to come together regularly and to renew commitment to God and obedience to God's will. Hebrews 10 tells us, do not stop meeting together. We need this covenant renewal. We need to come together and do this together. We need to be hearers together, and we need to be doers together, and we need the accountability. That's why membership is so important. But where do you hear? Where do you hear what God himself says about himself? And and where do you hear what he requires of you? It's in his word, his refreshing, sweet, beautiful, comforting, convicting, purifying, soul-exposing, sin-purging, heaven-opening, glorious scriptures. Hear his word and do it. You can't just hear it and deceive yourself. If you want to be a recipient of the blessings of this covenant, do what it says. To do them. In keeping them, there's great reward, we read in Psalm 19. They're sweeter than honey, yes, and so you can hear them and taste them, but you also must act on them because there's great reward. And in not keeping them, there's great warning. Hear God's word, my brothers and sisters, and do it. Not in order to earn your relationship before God, but do it because you have this relationship with God. Because of his unshakable covenant of grace. And so you and I are called right now by God's word and his spirit to come to him with our whole hearts. Come to your God of faithfulness. As Israel once again claimed God's promises for her, pour out all your heart before him. Renew your faithfulness to the covenant because God has been faithful to you. See your gracious God's divine forbearance with you and his desire to bless you and to draw you near to himself and to give you life. Recall what he has done when he established your righteousness for you in Jesus Jesus Christ. And renew your faith in Jesus today and go from here a doer of this word.
we get to come to our own covenant renewal ceremony in just a few moments as we take the supper. Prepare your hearts to be poured out before God, to receive Christ's righteousness, his body broken for you, his blood poured out for you, that you might go from here strengthened and encouraged to be a hearer and a doer of the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your patience with us when we hear your word and disobey. We thank you for your spirit who is with us to enable us to hear your word and to obey. We pray that we would be those who know your covenant promises, who read about them and think about them and act upon them. And would our obedience be our commentary on the word of God? Strengthen us. Remind us of who we are in Jesus. Show us the glorious gospel. And would it be the thing that upholds us here and as we go from here, knowing that it's not our strength, but yours that has won this eternal battle. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.